transmitting live from the heart of Times Square on 99.5 FM, WBAI New York, Pacifica Radio for the Tri-State Area. This is Trump Watch, a weekly series investigating the actions of and reactions to President Donald J. Trump and his administration. I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Conrad Tokyo, Sparrow, Pistachio, just unnatural. The dog is off the barrel. Rather watch an intention. Politician, politics. CNN and all this. Juan, yo, who? What the f Trump and an SNL hilarity. Troublesome times, kid. No time for comedy. It was a big day yesterday, an incredible day. And last night, the Republican Party defied history to expand our Senate majority while significantly beating expectations in the House for the midterm and midterm year. We did this in spite of a very dramatic fundraising disadvantage driven by Democrats' wealthy donors and special interests and very hostile media coverage, to put it mildly. The media coverage set a new record and a new standard. That was President Donald Trump speaking at a White House press conference earlier today about the results of Tuesday's midterm elections, footage courtesy of CBS. Hello and welcome to Trump Watch. Despite what the president described in that clip as hostile press coverage that, quote, set a new standard, the Republicans successfully added at least two seats to their Senate majority in the midterms. And though the much ballyhooed blue wave led to the Democrats picking up 27 seats, at least 27 seats, and regaining a majority in the House of Representatives for the first time in eight years, they were deprived of key victories in Florida and Georgia, apparently due to what Vice President Mike Pence referred to as the Red Wall. Yet with a Republican Party that appears determined to follow this president wherever he may lead, the reconstituted Democratic caucus in the House of Representatives will undeniably be the first major check from within the federal government that Donald Trump has experienced since becoming president two years ago, other than, of course, special counsel Robert Mueller and his team. So what will a Democratic House mean for President Trump? And how will this enhanced Republican majority in the Senate help him? Here to tackle those questions is Paul Kane. We spoke earlier today. Joining me now is Paul Kane, the senior congressional correspondent for The Washington Post. Hello, Paul. Welcome to Trump Watch. Thanks so much for being our guest on the show. Anytime. Happy to do it. For all the hyperbole about this being the most important election of our lifetimes, Tuesday's midterm results were pretty much along the lines of what most pundits predicted. The Democrats retook the House while Republicans increased their majority in the Senate. Was there anything that surprised you about the outcome? Um, I guess what really surprised me was the state of Florida. Um, which you know, gosh, is it is it is that make me a fool because I got I got tricked by Florida, um, which has made you know for a generation made fools of us all. But um, I, you know, I had been down there a couple weeks ago for a uh, campaign swing, and I watched Andrew Gillum campaign along with Bill Nelson, the gubernatorial and senatorial nominees, uh, along with Joe Biden, and all of this energy seem to be going toward the Democrats, toward Andrew Gillum. 
And uh, he was, you know, without question, this, the, the, you know, the most he would have been the most liberal governor uh, ever in Florida. And uh, and every poll toward the end, most, you know, I don't say eight out of nine, nine out of ten, the last ten polls showed him winning and showed him, I think, a little bit above Bill Nelson winning. And they both fell flat. And, you know, I just think that one thing that is clear is that Florida is America. Florida is, it, it has suburbs, it has big cities, major big cities in Miami. Um, it has a massive farm uh, population. It is rural. It is beaches. Um, you know, it's the panhandle. And so that just surprised me. I, I really thought that they would at least split one of those two Florida races. Uh, you know, the final outcome in the House, I think, is going to be in the low 30s. Um, it's pretty close to what I would have guessed in terms of the Democratic pickups. Um, and the Senate, uh, I sort of personally went back and forth as to whether they would pick up them Republicans would pick up one seat or two seats, maybe even three, and that's actually where they are right now, somewhere between there, uh, as they do the final vote counts in Florida and Arizona. So uh, it wasn't necessarily the broader outcomes that surprised me, but just a few races underneath it all, I really thought were going to go a little bit better for Democrats, and instead they did not. And speaking of Florida, one big story to come out of the midterms was, of course, Florida voters' decision on Amendment 4, giving an estimated 1.5 million citizens with felony convictions in the state the right to vote, except those convicted of murder and felony sex crimes. This clearly could have major ramifications moving forward. How do you see it reshaping Florida politics and national races in general? Well, I'm not... So I'm not sure. I know it passed with a big margin. I think it was 50% or more voting for it, which which confirms something that has become increasingly obvious, um, that uh, people viewed that as part of broader criminal justice reform, which is something that has real bipartisan support. Up here in the Capitol, you have people like conservative Texas Senator uh, John Cornyn, who is working on that issue, along with liberal New Jersey Democratic Senator Cory Booker. Um, and I think people really view that, the restoration of voting rights, as part of that whole entire criminal justice reform process. Now, the implementation of it is, you know, the devil is in the details. How long does it take to implement this, this ballot initiative? How long will it take to... Uh, have the, these voters uh, voting set up. Um, there, there's an inclination uh, among a lot of liberal activists to make uh, an assumption that there's a overrepresentation of minorities among those 1.4 million. Uh, I haven't seen the data myself. I don't know for sure. Um, it's possible that, you know, a large portion could skew toward the Democrats in terms of how they vote, how they, uh, how they, uh, how their political behavior is. But you know, you got to get them. Not only do you then not have to just restore their voting rights, you actually have to turn them out to the polls, uh, and that's been sort of a recurring problem for Democrats sometimes with Latino voters, where I think Democrats in Washington make an assumption that Latino voters will show up and then get surprised when there's a sort of 
middling average turnout. Um, so, you know, it is, does come down to the old cliche, you know, all comes down to turnout. But, um, you know, once these voting rights are restored, they got to go out, they got to register these people, and uh, then kind of turn them out to the polls, or else you're going to get more disappointments like you got last night in Florida. And Amendment 4 passed with 64% of the vote, according to the New mm-hmm. York Times. Uh, you know, the the local representative, our, well, should I say the, the national U.S. representative for our local district here in New York, Hakeem Jeffries, was on WNYC's Brian Lehrer show, the NPR station here in New York City. And he raised the specter of possible voter suppression or even interference, something strange with the vote totals in Florida. He cited exit polls that only 19 percent of African-American women voted for Gillum in the state, uh, a seemingly very unlikely outcome. Are you hearing anything about this? Is there any cause to doubt the outcome in Florida? Uh, Nothing that I have seen yet so far. Um, I, I personally am just getting more and more tired of exit polling, uh, and I just feel like it's it's constantly uh, mistelling, misreading the electorate, and I don't know exactly what the scientific reason is. But you know, in the seven o'clock hour last night, um, uh, the the best expert that I know on Florida data uh, is a Democratic strategist named Steve Shale. He worked for Obama's 2008-2012 Florida presidential campaigns, and he was on Twitter and, you know, texting with me uh, and probably dozens of other reporters. He liked what he saw in the uh, predominantly urban counties like Broward and Dade. He was saying, like, oh, those numbers look good. Those numbers look good. Those numbers look good. So uh, I don't think... It, it, you know, the, the, the failure for Democrats there, I think, falls back on just, uh, you know, an incredible wave across those rural inner interstate spots where they just they, they, the Trump connection is so strong for whatever reason that there is just a, a constant over underestimate of how much they're going to come out and turn out and vote for him. Uh, because it's, you know, this was 2016. Uh, there's a lot of echoes of 2016 because in that first seven o'clock hour, uh, two years ago, people were saying, oh, these numbers are great for Clinton. Oh, the early vote did come in and it broke in Broward and Dade the way they wanted it. It broke in Pinellas last night, um, in favor of Gillum, but it just turns out these other counties are just getting redder and redder. Most Democratic members of the House, both those currently serving and those just elected in this so-called blue wave, which retook the U.S. House of Representatives, the Democratic majority, should I say, retook the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, this new group of uh, congressmen and women will be sworn in on January 3rd when the new Congress convenes for the first time. Many have expressed little interest in launching impeachment proceedings against the president. House Minority Mm -hmm. Leader Nancy Pelosi, soon to be House Majority Leader, assuming the Democratic caucus reelects her, told Judy Woodruff of the PBS NewsHour on Tuesday that when it comes to impeaching the president, quote, I get criticized in my own party for not being in support of it, but I'm not. 
So if impeachment is looking like it's off the table, at least for now, what will the newly sworn in Democratic majority in the House mean for President Trump? Well, I, I, I spoke to uh, Pelosi's longtime advisor, um, John Lawrence, who uh, served on Capitol Hill for more than 40 years, uh, first as the chief of staff to her close confidant, uh, Congressman George Miller, who retired a few years ago. And then he served as Pelosi's chief of staff for six or seven years, including all four years that she was previously House Speaker. I talked to him about this, and he basically said, go back and look at what happened in 2007 and 2008, and that's the playbook for how she is going to take up this charge. You know, there were people that came into office when they won the majority in the 2006 midterms. There were Democrats that came into office, and there were some that were already there, that believed that the Bush administration had committed the equivalent of a war crime for starting a war in Iraq under false pretenses of weapons of mass destruction. As John told me last night, some of those people wanted to go straight to impeachment. Instead, she understood that to go straight to impeachment would just sort of further polarize the world. Uh, Instead, she encouraged her committee chairman to begin some really vigorous oversight of the administration that at that point had had six years of a pretty free pass from a Republican majority in the House. People like Henry Waxman chairing the Oversight Committee, uh, John Dingell, who was overseeing the, the Energy and Commerce Committee, they really started digging into the agencies, and they exposed a bunch of scandals. Uh, it didn't lead to impeachment proceedings, but it really just be, continued to weaken the Bush administration politically and further weakened John McCain's standing more broadly because he was running essentially for a third Bush term in 2008. Uh, The way her close confidant John Lawrence described it was to me was, you know, the first thing we had to do was prove to the American people that we were capable of of wielding the keys of power um, without being disruptive as a way to allow voters to then think it would be a good idea to elect a Democratic president to go along with this Democratic Congress. I think that's what you're going to see a lot of from Pelosi, you know, if and when she is speaker next year and the year after. Um, You know, this could change. She's, you know, there's, you know, the Mueller investigation continues even as, you know, there are the tumult is happening at the Justice Department. But, uh, you know, if there is a report that is delivered, she will uphold her constitutional duty. Her Jerry Nadler is going to be chairman of the Judiciary Committee. He has said as much as well. But they're not rushing into something unless they have real findings to get there. And what would some of those specific uh, findings or searches, perhaps would be a better term, look like? Uh, Trump's tax returns. Do you see that as a possible angle the House could pursue? Uh, yeah, they can definitely pursue that. But I, I think they're they're again. I think they'll they'll do so in a pretty methodical way. Um, you know, I think there are some uh, Trump opponents out there who are a little bit over anxious and think that on January third, Trump's tax returns are going to be laid before the public. Uh, I don't think it'll go that way. I think you will see the new 
incoming uh, oversight chairman, Elijah Cummings of Baltimore, is uh, very thoughtful, very methodical. Uh, I think he is going to, you know, he'll probably sit down and send a few letters to the Trump organization, to Trump personally, um, asking specific questions about what sort of financial ties do this, does this organization have to foreign governments? What kind of benefits have they been getting? What have uh, the emoluments clause about foreign governments paying uh, money into the Trump organization? They're going to start asking those questions, and I think they'll be forceful but polite letters at first, and they want to build a record of you know essentially being rejected time and again, and then eventually move toward trying to subpoena them. And, you know, I don't think we're going to see the, uh, like every bit of tax record. I think they might even just subpoena, you know, specific uh, narrow parts of the tax records or narrow specific years. And then we're going to try to piece together sort of the financial empire that the amazing New York Times report detailed uh, a few weeks back. Um, about whether or not the organization has been um, essentially dodging taxes. I think you'll see a lot of that, but the big, big questions are really waiting for Mueller and waiting for that team of prosecutors to to get down to business and see if there are more indictments coming and whether there's a full report sent to Congress. I'm speaking with Paul Kane, the senior congressional correspondent for The Washington Post. You're listening to Trump Watch. My name is Jesse Lent. Paul, what about the Senate? Many Democrats are understandably elated after recapturing the House following eight years in the minority. But Republicans picked up at least two Senate seats, as you mentioned. And as we Mm -hmm. tape this interview on Wednesday afternoon, we should say this could all change any minute. This would give them a five vote majority in the Senate if you count the vote of Vice President Mike Pence in the event of a tie. This really gives the president uh, a lock on any future Supreme Court appointment. Speaking of the Supreme Court. Both President Trump and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky called the election results a victory. What are some of the ways that this larger Senate majority will affect President Trump for the next two years? For starters, impeachment would be extremely unlikely as the Senate is the body that rules on impeachment after the House brings articles of impeachment for listeners that might not know how that works. Yeah, uh, it's 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 a it's it's a lot more. It, it's if it's only two seats, that sounds like it's a small amount of wiggle room. But the reality is, it's it's a huge lifeline to McConnell. He was, uh, you know, this time a year ago, he said something to me, and I made this crack to other reporters and his own colleagues. He said, "I never thought that I'd be." stuck taking attendance like a school teacher and that was you know the the, the fall and uh, early winter last year he was down to a 51 49 majority uh once doug jones won that special election in alabama um but it wasn't just that he it was down to that narrow 51 49 majority john mccain was had left and gone home to phoenix to uh to battle and ultimately lose his uh, fight with brain cancer. Uh, that sad Cochran was uh, ailing and was sporadically missing 
uh, votes because he couldn't be here because he was old and sick. And there were a couple of others as well. And, um, you know, and then you and he always had on top of that the random issue of the moderates, the moderate Republicans that are left, Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. And that was a, it was a huge problem for him. Sometimes they were surprised that they would, you know, they, they realized they were going to lose on uh, a nominee and they had to either pull it or reschedule it and wait for people to get back. Now, if he gets 53 seats, you know, Collins and Murkowski can vote no all the time. And he's still at 51 and he can still confirm anybody he wants Anybody who wants to replace Jeff Sessions is, is almost certainly going to get confirmed. Anybody who they pick that is, you know, pretty qualified, if there's another Supreme Court vacancy in the next two years, just about guaranteed that that person will get confirmed. Uh, it could get ugly, as the Kavanaugh thing did, um, but it will give him a wiggle room to know that they can pretty much get through all this. And on top of that, the longer-term scare for Democrats is, you know, let's say the Senate ends at 53-47 after all the votes are counted. Um, if that's the case, remember, Doug Jones is running in Alabama in 2020 for another term. It's really unlikely that he can win there, given how tough, given how bad the, the showings were for Democrats in, in even slightly less Republican states like Indiana and Missouri and North Dakota. So they're they're starting off next year with down to 46 seats or so to, to, for what they're thinking about for 2020. They would need to really somehow win five seats, and it's better for them in 2020, but I'm not sure it's that good. You know, they might have locked up the majority of the Republicans all the way through 2022, um, which is a long ways to go in terms of trying to control the Senate Judiciary Committee and the confirmation process when you're seeing this many justices all creeping up into the late 70s and early 80s. And there were only eight Senate seats that were in play in this election, right? And they were mostly in rural districts. Uh, the only two that were... Uh, you know, Florida and Nevada are really the only two that were in the traditional presidential battleground states. Um, everything else that was in play in the final two weeks were all pretty red conservative states, uh, with possible exception of Arizona, as it has gotten a little bit purple in the last cycle or two. But, uh, yeah, it was just a terrible, terrible map for Democrats. And um, uh, all of the all of the heated rhetoric uh, that, that came pouring in in the final six weeks of the election, from Kavanaugh onward, I think polarized those races in those conservative areas like Indiana, North Dakota, and Missouri, and it just made it a, a much more of a battle over cultural issues, which is something that Democrats did not want. They wanted the focus to be on pre-existing conditions, pre-existing conditions. Republicans are trying to repeal Obamacare and take away the pre-existing condition guarantees. And that message got really hard in those really conservative states where it turned into a culture war. The headline on the Washington Post 
uh, homepage for an article from your colleagues Michael Shearer and jo- uh, Josh Dossey, uh, two great reporters, I should add, reads how the best how trump helped the democrats and further divided the gop a statement supported by several prominent democratic strategists they quote in the piece but if donald trump's true goal was to win more seats in the senate and the clearest path for him to do this was by getting his base fired up enough to head out to the polls in an election where his name wasn't on the ballot did he not succeed in doing this with the nativist rhetoric that some Democrats believed helped them? Yes, absolutely. He succeeded in that regard. But let me flip this around and, and, and what, my, what those two, what Michael and uh, Dossie were trying to get at is that as he was driving up the rhetoric and, you know, making, you know, Heidi Heidkamp's race in North Dakota, put it out of reach for, for Democrats there. Um, and, and doing the same thing in Missouri in that Senate race. As he was doing that, he was turning up the heat in these suburban districts where Republicans had been marginally ahead or ahead comfortably. About two weeks ago, uh, two, two and a half weeks ago, I was, I wanted to go to a district where Republicans were doing better than they had expected to do. That they were holding on despite the, uh, the, you know, despite the tide they were running against. And uh, Republican operatives told me to go to South Florida and watch Carlos Curbelo, um, who was uh, running for his second term um, in a uh, sort of Cuban heavy district, uh, sort of Western Miami, all the way down through uh, the Everglades and Key West. So by the time I left that district, after having been down there, the whole immigration rhetoric was at fevered pitch. There were there were mail bombs being discovered in Democratic uh, office uh, attempted mail bombs going to prominent Democrats like the Clintons and the media, and and Curbelo's race just shifted. This was a race that Republicans in Washington thought they wanted to tell reporters go down there because it's a great race for us. And by the end of October, the ground had completely shifted, and last night he lost. He lost a race that they believed three weeks ago would have been a victory, and it was largely because his district is heavily Latino. Uh, it's 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 got a lot of it's got some urban in terms of Miami. It's got a lot of suburban areas, and that race and there were you know a bunch of others just became unwinnable in this tenor, in this environment that Trump helped create. And that drove voters away from House Republicans, but into the arms of some Senate Republicans. So to some degree, Trump sacrificed his any chance at the House majority in order to expand the Senate majority. Thank you so much. All right. I've been speaking with Paul Kane, the senior congressional correspondent for The Washington Post. You're listening to Trump Watch. My name is Jesse Lent. One quick addendum to my interview with Paul Kane. Shortly before we went to broadcast, the news was revealed that President Trump has asked Attorney General Jeff Sessions to resign, with Trump appointing Matthew Whitaker, Mr. Sessions' chief of staff, as acting attorney general, as reported in The New York Times. And 
that's going to do it for this week's show. Reggie Johnson engineered this program live. You can hear all 92 episodes of Trump Watch with Jesse Lent at soundcloud.com slash trumpwatchwbai or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter and join us again next Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. when my guest will be Arun Singh Seth. Sethi, author of the book American Hate, Survivors Speak Out About Hate Crimes in the Era of Trump. I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Talk to you next time. And all the times I had the chance to